Hello, welcome to Louder Than Words, where we talk about ideas that improve lives. I'm Jules Pretty from the University of Essex, and it's a great pleasure to welcome today, also from the University of Essex, Matthew Gillett and Marina Lostal, both from the School of Law. Our topic today is um, a range of issues relating to international law, peace and security, cultural heritage, um, and the role of the of international institutions such as the International Criminal Court. So um, uh, world-spanning issues um, that uh, both Matthew and Marina are um, experts on. So welcome to you both to the show. Thanks very much. Um, you're both speaking to us from Spain today. Um, so what I'd like to do is to start, as we normally do, to get a, get uh, uh, you to tell us a bit about your research, and then we'll pick up on, on some of those specifics. So um, Matthew, um, do you want to start a little bit about the kinds of things that you're working on um, at the moment? Yeah, thanks, Jules, and uh, happy to be here, and especially happy to be here together with Mariner as we do a lot of research collaboratively, and we live quite collaboratively as well, um, and we work collaboratively. So in terms of um, research interests, over the years, I've been drawn more and more to the use of international law to protect the environment and nature. And much more recently, that has started to overlap with the use of international law to assist and to help protect the rights of indigenous groups, which is, I think, quite a natural transition because we're seeing more and more that the harmonious lifestyle of indigenous groups um, in an environmental setting have similar interests uh, that need to be protected. And international law has a way of introducing a new set of regulations that are outside domestic regulations and can provide an additional safeguard or an additional set of institutions sometimes that groups who sometimes have been persecuted by governments can look to and can rely on. So that's that's been the major kind of direction of travel of research recently. That's great. Um, Marina, tell us a bit about your work. Hello, um, and thank you for having me here. So my work started with uh, a PhD um, about uh, 15 years ago on the protection of cultural property in armed conflict. Um, so I've always been fascinated by um, the way international law can protect um, marginalised topics, um, sometimes the non-human or or victims that are uh, not at the centre of every discourse, at least they were not um, 10 or 15 years ago. So through my specialisation on cultural property, I moved on to um, the rights of victims um, of uh, court crimes and, uh, for example, currently I'm working on a book on reparations um, of uh, victims of court crimes, such as war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide before the International Criminal Court. Um, but um, also my specialization in cultural property led me to be very interested in its uh, progressive development into the right to culture. And that's what brought me closer to um, this area of indigenous rights um, and the project that we're going to be talking about today. Mm. Fascinating. So we've got we've got environment, nature, heritage, rights, um, and particularly kind of indigenous people who hold all the, those things together 
only just in certain kind of contexts, um, but certainly as as exemplars for for many ways of thinking. Well, Matthew, the, the, let's let's come to a. A specific, you helped found, I think that's right, the Biocultural Indigenous University in Amazonia of Colombia, uh, bringing together Indigenous culture and um, what's called Buen Vivir, the good life, um, I think a little bit as an, an aspect of that, So, um, of which there's a great interest um, elsewhere. But tell us a little bit of the story behind that. What, what happened to make this thing begin to work? Mm-hmm. So the... Inga people uh, from the Amazon part of Colombia, um, but also who stretch across other states as well. So there's there's some sort of pan-Amazonian types of, of links. Uh, have lived um, you know, for centuries and centuries in this area and more recently have tried to set up indigenous-led tertiary education types of institutions. And so we, uh, through a mutual friend, became involved with this project, and we then received an AHRC grant to research how human rights could assist them in providing an additional point of support, an additional set of um, institutions uh, based in and around the UN that could then essentially give them leverage in negotiations with the Colombian government, the Ministry of Education, to have their um, facilities, let's say, recognized. Now, I should say that the project itself is ongoing, and it's not that there is a a specific university that's up and running. It's much more um, a process at the moment of deciding how they want this, um, this institution to be formed. But what we were able to do is go and um, contribute to and participate in a the first um, national congress of the essentially the Inga people in Colombia back in May this year, where they brought together about 800 um, members of um, different regional groups and elected a new leadership and really moved forward with their um, projects in on the education front, but also the cultural preservation and various other fronts in this respect. So this is fascinating. So you, you, you're, you're, you and others are helping to act as, as kind of intermediaries between national and international contexts to help protect in the end and support indigenous cultures um, who have a long history, but when they when they butt up against the, the modern world and the colonialising tendencies have been often the losers. So do people, when you went to the, to the Congress in May, do people feel as though this bringing together is, is something kind of new and rather wonderful? I mean, is this, I, I just get under the skin of that a little bit. It sounds fascinating. Uh, yeah, I think that um, there's a, definitely a, an appreciation of the promise and the potential of international human rights and things like the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Persons, which has a strong emphasis on education, cultural preservation, well-being, and um, touches on environmental rights. So there's uh, a lot of enthusiasm at the same time, it is a matter of managing expectations because where you have a state set up like Colombia that's um, been operating for decades and has its own uh, regulations, it, 
they're not immediately going to turn around and say, okay, uh, we're going to change everything because you've referred to the United Nations. So um, what I would say is we're acting in a way to translate that international human rights law into a domestic context and really just see where there are areas that we can try and advise, um, add value, but very much we're in the passenger seat. We're just um, following the process, seeing where we can provide extra extra viewpoints and additional angles. And it really is the, the people, the Congress themselves, who were electing their leadership and deciding which direction they want to take it. Mm, fascinating. Thank you. Uh, Marina, so um, let, let's stitch together, if we may, and come back to the specifics of what you're both working on um, uh, in 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 the kind of environmental nature sphere in, in Colombia. Um, your expertise in international cultural heritage and and also what what kind of um, war crimes have been done to that cultural heritage. Uh, you've written about about Mali, about Timbuktu, the the um, the famed library that thousands of documents and scripts were lost, um, and also armed non-state actors. Um, in this complex area, obviously, the Sahel is a, um, a, a difficult context for many people who live there at the moment. But tell us a little bit about about your work on on that that cultural heritage. Okay, um, so um, I've worked. Um, you mentioned uh, Mali and the Sahel. So my work has at the beginning was very dogmatic, trying to say. Um, what the rules for the protection of cultural property was, where, sorry. And um, um, because when I uh, started my, my PhD, I realized that um, when it comes to the protection of cultural property in a conflict, there are um, too many laws, but little law. Um, and that means that law has this uh, goal of being coherent and complete. But when you look at the rules for the protection of cultural property, there's been so many protocols, conventions, regulations and and resolutions that they have meddled a bit the field and it's not very clear um, what uh, cultural property is and what level of protection ought to be applied. So that's how my work started. Um, And and Mali was a case study because there are several conventions that should apply um, in that territory. However, when um, radical armed non-state um, non- actors establish themselves, it doesn't matter what the law says because their goal is to disobey it. So you cannot really deter those who cannot be um, uh, convinced otherwise. So my my work moved towards um, more compliance and reparations to victims. And that's when I became involved um, momentarily with the International Criminal Court in one of the cases uh, where they... Um, investigated and prosecuted and finally he pled guilty one of the persons that was uh, responsible for the attacks against world heritage in in timbuktu in mali and then my work more moved more towards what the this cultural property mean to the locals in the area and um, what is cultural property aside from um bricks and um and stones if, if you want to put it like that um, and so that's where um, slowly with other experts, uh, we started to look into who are the victims of cultural property destruction um, besides the building itself. 
And here at the International Criminal Court and the judges made a bit of history because it was the first case that had to deal with this question. And then the judges then decided that there were um, primarily four groups uh, that were affected um, from the uh, brother to Narawa. The first one would be the international community because everyone is affected by the loss of world heritage then the national community because it was their national patrimony, then the inhabitants or the residents in Timbuktu, and then lastly, those persons that had a very close personal connection um, for um, religious or personal reasons with the buildings. Um, and that's where I opened my eyes to the area of right to culture um, and started understanding that cultural property is a bit more than the building itself. Yeah, so the, the, these are contexts where um, war crimes are attacking religion, freedom of expression, freedom of thought, and the buildings, as you described. So the buildings are often the thing in people's minds when they think of of, of kind of long, I was going to say long-standing, but I don't mean literally, but long-lasting heritage. But it's 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 the bits in between that are really important and often often missed and forgotten. So that must have been quite a big step to have those four areas identified. Yes, absolutely. Um, to start looking and weaving into what is the connection between property and people and what they um, what was attacked was their daily life, their beliefs, their um, their faith, their hope, and the uh, place that they recognise as their home. Just on that note, if I can piggyback with Marina. So ironically, it's actually the International Criminal Court that brought us together um, in a strange coincidence. And so I worked on international cases as a prosecutor for about 15 years before joining um, Essex University. And on the aspect of cultural destruction, we had one witness who was a member of the actual, the Serb perpetrator forces, reasonably senior, and he testified that the reason they destroyed the Bosnian Muslim mosques across uh, Bosnia was, A, to prevent them from congregating again, to take away that physical place where the people came together, uh, but B, to actually break the spirit, uh, to remove that collective consciousness. So I think it really tied in with what Marina was saying before about it having multiple levels. Uh, it's not just the destruction of the bricks and mortar, but it is something going to the very um, core of the identity of the group. And that testimony was actually part of what helped us prove genocide in cases, for instance, against the, the former Bosnian Serb president, Radovan Karadzic. Fascinating. Well, that, that's very interesting. Um, uh, tell us a little bit more then about the the value of, of international institutions like the International Criminal Court, as you were just describing the, uh, your experience over, over a long period of time. Um, they're not, not, as it were, just about reparations, as, as Marina was saying, but they are about identifying these deliberate projects to undermine certain groups um, as, as the testimony was in that case. Um, and the conclusions when, when you come to an outcome like that, do they have, do they echo across um, political spheres and social spheres and cultural ones um, once you get some sort of decision that is, makes this kind of clear 
um, uh, decision as a result of a lot of really um, hard work, I imagine, over a long period of time? There's two ways in my mind in which the international cases can have the most impact. One is in the respect of targeting leaders. So whether it's presidents or quasi-presidents, uh, top generals of the military forces and police forces and, and other leaders, that sends a message down the chains of the hierarchy that ordering, for instance, crimes against humanity, war crimes um, or genocide, etc., is not permissible, no matter what the um, perceived needs or um, desires or dangers that were facing a society were at the time. So that's important for deterrence. And then secondly, there's a symbolic aspect to having crimes tried before the International Criminal Court. So the first trial that was completed there was against Thomas Lubanga Dielo from Democratic Republic of Congo. And he was convicted for enlisting and conscripting child soldiers, which was an important focus of, of the proceedings because across many conflicts up to that point, it was actually kind of ubiquitous and, and quite common to use child soldiers. So it set a marker in the ground saying, that is forbidden. Uh, again, no matter what the pressing needs, the urgency, the threats that are faced, um, there are certain lines that can't be crossed. To bring it back to the environmental aspects, um, this is why now there's a number of us advocating for the inclusion of a crime of ecocide uh, before the International Criminal Court, because we feel that irrespective of whether any particular person is convicted in the next few years for ecocide per se, um, having it listed alongside crimes against humanity, aggression, war crimes, genocide, will say that when it comes to the environment, it's something that needs to be protected, just as humanity needs to be protected, and that those who transgress uh, too far, we're not talking about every piece of littering, we're talking about the most grave forms of ecocide, should be held criminally responsible for doing so. So th this is a potential value of international um, criminal justice. At the same time, it, it is not easy to bring one of these cases together and there are jurisdictional limits and there are um, often just accessibility of evidence limits which which prevent us from running all of the cases that we would want to mm. well so you've this is this is very interesting so the, the those international institutions are not just responding to things that have already gone wrong if we think of that um, Sahelian context, Marina, that, that you were just talking about. If you draw a line from Guinea um, in the west of Africa, um, eastwards, you go from Guinea to Mali, Burkina, Niger, Chad and South Sudan, almost a straight line, all of which have had coups in the last two or three years. So it's already a very difficult context to be intervening to make things better. But what you've described, Matthew, is is that that making those interventions after the fact are intended partly to change future behaviours and choices, and that that could be actually even the more important part of the process if you get to a decision. It's influenced child so soldiers. It may have influenced things in the Balkans as a result of those decisions. Would that be a fair conclusion? 
It, it is fair. I think Marina probably has more specialty on the Malian situation. In terms of um, deterrence, what I would say is that it, it's a shame if international justice has to be the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff instead of the fence at the top. And there is a strong push as well to improve um, early warning signals and systems. And I know the UN is is trying. It's, of course, quite hamstrung at the moment with the conflict with Russia being having invaded Ukraine. Um, so the Security Council of the UN is, is not as functional as it could be. Um, but it has just ordered, for instance, um, a, a forced to go into Haiti to deal with criminal gangs. And so there is a, a broader approach being taken to its traditionally quite um, restricted mandate. And again, international criminal justice um, it primarily is an ex post facto remedy, but you just hope that it can have that um, secondary deterrent effect to stop others who might be thinking about engaging this in the same kinds of act. Mm. Marina, do you want to add something to that with your Sahelian context, but also in your in your book on international cult cultural heritage and law in armed conflict? You also talked about the kinds of things that have happened in in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, changes uh, in Syria, in Libya. So these are not things uh, related just to the to the Sahelian context of of, of Africa. They're about changes and threats that are happening in many parts of the world. Yes. Um, so one of the, as, as, I mean, I'm, I'm a firm believer in international criminal justice, um, and uh, I very much admire the work that the ICC and other tribunals do. Um, but as Matthew was saying, it's an ex post facto intervention. But more than that, it's also selective in a way that the ICC, the International Criminal Court, doesn't have jurisdiction over every single country in the world. So his, his reach, uh, capacity of, to influence is more limited than what uh, someone might think. And when it comes, for example, to Syria and Iraq, those are two countries that are outside the remit of the International Criminal Court. And um, the deterrent um, uh, impact or deterrent influence cannot be exerted there, as perhaps in Mali and other countries in the Sahel. And that's why I think both Matthew and I um, that have been involved in the, in the work of the uh, tribunals in The Hague and so forth have moved slowly or expanded, I would say, slowly from international criminal law and international criminal justice to human rights work, where you can be more preventative and proactive in trying to make sure that human rights are protected ahead of um, anything going terribly wrong. Um, and that's why also we are now involved in this with the indigenous communities in Colombia. Well, let's let's come back to Colombia then again because that that is bringing some really interesting things together. Uh, uh, a shout out for your book as well, uh, Matthew. Your recent one, uh, prosecuting environmental harm before the International Criminal Court, um, 2022. Um, perhaps perhaps tell us a little bit about the book, but then lead us into the to the work on the environment and nature that you've you've talked briefly about and and how this idea of ecocide is, is beginning to kind of open up opportunities um, to prevent problems, but also perhaps to create agency to um, prevent them occurring in the first place. Um, so do you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, thanks. Uh, the book looks at 
the current prospects for addressing environmental harm before the International Criminal Court, and it does so substantively in terms of what crimes are available, but also procedurally, how would you actually get from the starting point to collecting the evidence, to presenting it, to actually potentially getting a conviction? And it's really in that latter respect that I feel that the court has a lot of development to undergo before it could effectively address an environmental crimes case, because the judges, uh, they're trained and their focus is really on anthropocentric crimes, crimes against groups of humans, whether that's execution or torture or uh, sexual violence. Crimes against the environment are something of a different beast in terms of the type of um, scientific evidence, soil sampling, atmospheric sampling that you might need. And so I think it will require a significant, um, let's say, upskilling of personnel and even additional personnel and maybe some institutional changes. But it's not to say that it's impossible, and certainly there's a lot of potential there. Now, when it comes to the environment and, and particularly Indigenous groups, what we've seen, um, Marina and myself in particular, is at this um, special jurisdiction for peace in Colombia. So it's a, a something of a hybrid court. It is applying international criminal law. So it's applying the crimes from the International Criminal Court, but in the context of this civil war, effectively, that you had with the FARC and the, the Colombian security forces for many years. And the the HIP, the special jurisdiction, is taking on crimes against the environment, and it now stands as the first, what you could say, um, quasi-international court or court applying international law that has an active case of um, specifically crimes against the environment. Additionally, it's just added another case uh, where the focus is crimes against indigenous groups and their territories. So these are throwing up some very novel questions. Uh, Marina and myself were invited um, to speak with the judges from the HEP and have been invited to provide um, reports to them on both these issues of um, crimes against the environment, um, but also the environment as a victim of crimes, uh, which creates a whole other set of interesting questions that very much um, dovetails with Marina's um, upcoming research. Very interesting. Um, well, let, let it tell tell us a little bit more about the conceptualization then of environment. Is 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 this a, a kind of broad abstract of systems? Is this about individual? Um, I mean, for example, individual veteran trees are seen as kind of. Um, almost human in lots of contexts. I mean, perhaps even in the UK, people would would seek to value them, even name them in particular kinds of ways. Um, so you can see that individual living things um, have a sometimes a different kind of cultural status. Um, but then, as you mentioned, you've got soils, you've got air, you've got insects, you've got animals and plants. Um, or, or are we seeing, uh, when you're thinking about, as it were, the environment, it's, it's the whole system um, and the threats to that. How is that kind of playing out? Well, the definitions of ecocide that are being proposed it define the environment very broadly, um, the hydrosphere, uh, atmosphere, etc., and living beings within it, aside from human beings. And what we're seeing is that um, there are multiple 
uh, levels of specificity. So you could start from, you know, the last uh, black rhino and a very specific discrete event and look at that as a potential form of ecocide. But then you could pull out the focus all the way to climate change and look at this much more global, multifactorial type of phenomena. Um, as you pull out the focus further, the uh, complexity of prosecution becomes higher and proving causation from any one person or even one organization is going to be more difficult. And of course, questions of selectivity will be aggravated in that type of context. Why, why are you targeting this corporation and not that corporation? Why this development project and not that one? And I think there are legitimate, very interesting questions about um, differentiated responsibilities amongst developed states who've had that opportunity to go through industrialization and all of the um, carbon emissions, et cetera, and pollution that that has caused versus other states which have not gone through that process to the same degree and whether a one-size-fits-all actually may not be complete justice in that sense and whether you may need some kind of variation depending on um, the development. And there is an environmental law principle of common but differentiated responsibilities, which I think international criminal justice could utilize quite effectively to, to deal with that and, and create a more, um, I would say, level playing field. Marina, um, uh, carry on this this line of talking about the the, the work on, on ecocide and environmental harm in Colombia. What, what other aspects uh, would you want to draw attention to? Um, a couple of months ago, um, in the context of one of the cases that this special jurisdiction in Colombia is dealing with, um, they um, issued to me a groundbreaking decision, and also I think is the first one of that kind, where they recognized a river, uh, the river Cauca, um, if I'm not mistaken, as a victim of the armed conflict. And, um, and I think to my knowledge that the first time that a natural element has been recognized as a victim, and that involves that it will have a right to representation in court and a right to reparation if the harm occurred to the river is proven. And this um, paves the way to uh, start restoring the environment without requiring an obliteration of the degree required by the crime of ecocide. Fascinating. And so do you think, I mean, the, the context of this happening with with active indigenous groups within uh, Colombia of a, of a social context that's trying to to create kind of improvements, if I can put it that way, after a long period of, of civil conflict, civil war, um, even, um, the, the, the indigenous views, uh, which which simplistically put would be about kind of more at the animistic end of 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 kind of spiritual views about about nature, some of those those views about personhood and uh, um, recognition of the importance of all the components of the natural systems are some of those kind of helping to shape these views in a more progressive way than might happen elsewhere. I'm wondering about the the just the the role of the indigenous cultures that are present in in how this is playing out. 
Yes, uh, um, absolutely. I, I think it's not a coincidence that this groundbreaking um, decision is taking place in Colombia, where they have a lot of um, indigenous groups uh, that inform the uh, the makeup of the country. They're recognized in the constitution, uh, the traditions and customs are respected. And one of the judges um, of, of this special court is indigenous and she's also um, um let's say influencing or or instilling um her knowledge um in, in the decisions and, and galvanizing support for their way of of seeing life and um and one of the ways in which i understand that they they see life is that um our Western existence, if you will, is predicated upon the separation between man and environment or man and nature. And, um, or the human and, and the environment, human and the animal. And, and for them, this separation does not exist. And the separation is also at the, um, source of most of our, uh, current problems. So, uh, for them, they, I don't think they define or they try to define the environment as the definitions of ecocide would say the hydrosphere, the lithosphere and so forth. For them, they see a tree and, and that's nature. And it ought to be protected. Um, and I think that's a phenomenon that has happened um, at the HEP, at the Colombian HEP, which is, well, the river is valuable. It is, um, and it ought to have rights. Therefore, it's a, it's a legal person that can be declared a victim. And, and I think it is very much uh, not a coincidence that indigenous thinking is permeating the HEP. That's fascinating, and and that it strikes me that the, the the ideas about care, caring, caring for people, you immediately transfer into caring for 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 nature, and in specifically a particular river, um, uh, which could emerge from this um, space as a um, not just as a victim, but as an exemplar for thinking in in many other parts of the world. I mean, presumably, you see between you opportunities for those kinds of lessons to be learnt for elsewhere. Um, Matthew? I certainly think that there are many uh, insights that can be drawn. And as we grow increasingly aware of the mutual interdependence of humans and nature, and not just in a pure survival manner, but I think also psychologically, and the way in which um, being surrounded by concrete jungle and, and giant skyscrapers is not healthy. And we've seen in, in many um, very advanced uh, Western countries this huge spike in, in psychological unwellness and increasing strain on sort of the medical profession and, and those areas, uh, I think, is, is starting to draw people's attention to the potential of these insights for that are, let's say, have been held for many generations amongst certain indigenous groups and and in some areas um it's it's interesting that international criminal law which on it in its origin was a very western type of concept with quite specific um very strict legal definitions is now somewhat coming full circle um to this um opening and uh, introduction of more uh i would say um broader uh, more informed notions that have a bit more flexibility to them. At the same time, uh, when it comes to a, a litigation court case from experience, you will have, of course, lawyers on both sides who will be 
challenging every single word of every definition. And I think at that point, um, there's going to be some fascinating discussions. We did have, for instance, a case from Uganda with uh, one of Joseph Kony's uh, lieutenants, Dominic Ongwen, who was convicted recently. And there's something of an analogy because the defense in that case made arguments about the spiritual hold that Joseph Kony had over members of the Lord's Resistance Army. And there was certainly something to it. Ultimately, in the case, it didn't prevent Ongwen getting convicted. But I think the the court, I mean, it, it took it seriously. It didn't just sweep it aside. And I think um, there's a realization that dealing with these cultural values from non-Western cultures has to be done if you're going to um, apply justice in a in a fair and respectful way. Marina. Yes, I just wanted to um, add that the Indigenous knowledge um, is not only um, bringing us closer to understand uh, the movement, for example, of rights of nature, but um, in my field is also making, at least me, question the concept of cultural property. Um, because the, the, as the conventions define it, and they've been defining it uh, until the early 2000s, and um, it's very much a monumentalist way of looking at cultural property. Is a museum, is a cathedral, a, a mosque, a synagogue. Um, but what about natural areas that are considered sacred? Can we consider them cultural property or not? Um, according to the very strict reading of positive law, natural areas would not fall, for example, within the ambit of um, many conventions protecting cultural property. But um, to me, that is a very, let's say, the outdated reading that needs to be updated through hermeneutical tools somehow, because it would lead to basically um, concluding that worshipping or, or uh, conducting rituals in a cathedral is more valuable than conducting them in the middle of a forest. And and sometimes, um, you know, the, the, the two things can happen hand in hand. And just to bring an, an example that happened recently in the UK, is as if saying that the cutting of the tree of Robin Hood um, that happened at the hands of apparently uh, two vandals last week was only cutting a tree, whereas it signifies much more above all to to uh, UK people. So, and, and I think epistemologists from indigenous communities can help us understand what these um, acts really mean and what nature can um, signify uh, for people. Thank you. Very interesting indeed. Well, let's let's come to a, um, a concluding couple of thoughts. Uh, could you could each of you give us a, a, a kind of recommendation, a policy recommendation? What's in your mind about what what you would like to see happen and change that would lead to improvements in people's lives, in 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 uh, improvements in nature, as we've been talking about, um, as you've spanned widely across international institutions and and really some very fascinating changes that are happening. Uh, a recommendation from each of you. What, what, what would be on the top of your list, Matthew? For me, it's the adoption of ecocide as a crime under international criminal law. It's not a panacea, it's not a silver bullet, but I think it could send a strong message about the international community taking environmental protection seriously. And to those would-be, let's say, Saddam Husseins who are thinking of you know, setting oil wells on fire, and also to those corporations um, like 
I guess it was BP and the um, Deepwater Horizon oil spill who are cutting corners and ignoring warning signs and uh, fines and thinking that that's just a cost of business. This would send a strong signal that, no, this will actually end with the leaders, the directors potentially facing serious criminal consequences and hopefully change behaviour. Thank you. Marina, your thoughts? Yes, um, I would say that um, what I would like to happen in the next, I don't know, 20, 30 years is a progressive erosion of the division between human and nature and human and animals um, in every ambit, uh, legal and political, and um, that um, one can think of. Um, not to think about the environment and also animals. Uh, I didn't say that, but I'm also into animal rights as objects to exploit um, or to commodify, but as things that we have to live together with. Thank you. Well, Matthew Gillett, Marina Lostel, thank you very much indeed. Fascinating conversation today. Um, real pleasure to have you both on. Many thanks indeed. Thank you, Jules. Thank you very much. That was Louder Than Words. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can. <laughs>